Hi guys. This is an episode about religion. This is a fake smile. <sighs> What's funny is at this point in Star Trek history, Star Trek's ratings were the worst they'd been since 1987. And I don't bring that up for just random reason. I, I can even give you the figures. I jotted it down there at 5.03 million overall rating when it comes to their Nielsen rating for the year. Or actually, the year is an accurate statement. It's more like for the season, which actually starts in fall and ends in spring. But you get the idea. So while this episode came out, uh, in this period, was the lowest they'd been to date. I have to put it that way because they kept going down after this point, but I'm getting off topic. Point being... That helps to explain part of why the studio was being studio-y as a consequence here. They were like, all right, listen, nobody likes religion shows and nobody likes Bajoran shows, so stop doing them, okay? And the creators were like, but we have a show set over Bajor, which is a heavily religious culture. That's nice. Make more action. And then they went, <laughs> because I'm just trying to insult the studio execs at this point. Like, I understand where they're coming from. I just don't give a damn. They were trying to insist that DS9 become another schlock show rather than a good show because they were trying to bring in more ratings, a.k.a. more ad revenue, which is really what that means. Because that's how they, char they know how much to charge for ad revenue. They can say, well, our show has such and such ratings, therefore we're going to charge you such and such. I don't actually know if that still works that way anymore, but that's certainly how it worked back in the day. So, the creators always had to push and shove and scream and bite and kick and tear, and occasionally rip and tear, in order to get these kind of episodes made. Now, I appreciate that effort, and I just want to give DS9's cat, mm, creative staff uh, credit because of the fact that we get episodes like this. To be clear, I actually really like this episode. If anything, I wish this was a two-parter. Seriously. There's a lot to unpack here, and, well, they kind of don't. It's like, bring up, bring up, bring up, bring up, conclusion. You can kind of feel how this, well, okay, this is pure headcanon, pure theory, but I think that this was originally supposed to be two separate episodes. Not necessarily a two-parter, but, like, the story arcs of two episodes was condensed into one because of how difficult it was to get these episodes made to begin with, right? So rather than risk the fact that we might never be able to conclude this arc, let's go ahead and just smash it into one episode. This would eventually con uh, continue forward in the episode Rapture, I believe, which is season five or six. I forget off the top of my head. But either way, you can kind of see how they were like, all right, look, <laughs> let's just do what we can, okay? Les Lando also directed this. I've mentioned him a few times on DS9 and in uh, TNG, and he does some good stuff. And so there's some really good transition shots, some really good uh, character moments. We get a lot of excellent performances from people. There's a great scene between Sisko and Kira where the two aren't crying, but they're on that point where they're just about to, and they're basically holding it back. Really well done. Really well done stuff. Although I can't remember any of the music from this episode. Anywho... <clears throat> Poor Cisco, by the way. I just want to say. Uh, well, actually, no, no, no. Let's let's rewind that. Cisco's fine. Let's talk about O'Brien. By the way, uh, some of you may be or may not be aware of the fact that I've had continuing issues with pronouncing his name because I keep hearing different people saying it in different ways in real life. And I realized, aha, there's this there's this one site that actually keeps track of name pronunciations. It's how I knew how to uh, pronounce. Uh, oh, jeez, I'm going to screw this up. No, I'm not. I'm going to look at my... I actually wrote down a guide for this. It was... Chuatel Ajiafor. 
That's it. Chuatella Giafor. And it helped me to pronounce his name. And most of the, the, the way this site works is they have the actors, like clips of the actors saying their own names. You can just go listen to it. They didn't have the guy who played O'Brien. <sighs> Anyways, so O'Brien's reaction to the baby is interesting. I say interesting because he himself gets across the point later on in the episode. Oh, as an aside, I think this B-plot shouldn't have been in this episode at all. I get why it was. I've already said why it was. It's just this episode had a lot to unpack, and it insisted on having a B-plot to not unpack in. Again, I get it. I get it. It's just, god dang it. Anyways, he, he says it later on in the episode. When he holds that baby in his arms, he's going to be overwhelmingly happy about it. It's going to be the greatest day in his life, right? But right now, all I can think about is, okay, I have no idea how I'm going to deal with that, right? I'm going to lose my life, I'm going to lose my time, I'm going to lose my friend, I'm going to lose my wife. And it's actually wonderfully human and relatable. And I love the way they present that, because it's not good and it's not bad. It's not like, I will stoically do this. It's not portrayed as right or wrong, is what I'm trying to say. The man just acknowledges that this is something that he is having trouble with. I also like how Quark is legitimately happy for him. Something about that just appeals to me. Seeing Cork like, oh man, ah, oh, when Nog was a baby, he was the cutest thing ever. And of course, everything goes right in their ears, right? There's also a really wonderful bit, although they, they overplayed the gag, where Worf shows up and he's like, what? Hey, do you know Keiko's having a baby? Now? That's all they had to do. That's all of the joke necessary there. Now, I understand trying to explain the joke, because not everyone's seen the episode Disaster. And if you haven't, shame on you. But nevertheless, I do have to admit, I get explaining the joke. So, then they explain the joke. That was fine. Then they drag it on. And on. And on. And on. And that just kind of fell flat a little bit. Molly is absolutely adorable. Have I mentioned that before? She always is. She's like one of the most adorable kid actors I've ever seen. So, she manages to maintain her adorableness. And... Then we see an interesting scene where Morn is playing darts with Bashir, and apparently is terrible at it, and yet still manages to have two lovely ladies in his arms as he's doing so. Which brings me to my real point. There's not a lot to really talk about or unpack when it comes to the O'Brien B-plot, and that's my point. It's very human. O'Brien has a very natural human reaction. Keiko, well... She has a wonderfully natural human reaction. Obviously, she does want to spend time with her husband. And if she wasn't otherwise busy, I guarantee you she would be. But she has a life, too. So, she based... And O'Brien's like, no, no, I'll just stay here. Because he wants to be supportive and he wants to be with his wife. But she's not... She's not terrible, is what I'm trying to say. I've had several people say that they don't like the relationship between the two. And I understand why. I really do. But to explain, the reasons why other people say she's terrible is mostly why I enjoyed the dynamic between the two of them. Because it is very, very realistic. I've seen a lot of couples and a lot of relationships in my life. Not my own. And, um, I mean, I've been... You get my point. And I've seen a lot of the dynamic that goes on there. And I love the idea that she is just, oh, thank God, he's home so he can take care of the kids so I can work on something for a bit. There's just a relief to that. I understand that, personally. Even though you do want to spend time with your child, sometimes it's just you just run out of energy. We don't have the kind of energy they do. It's insane. How do they keep going? Is it nap time yet? No. Okay. Ugh. It gets worse when they get to the point where they don't have nap time anymore, by the way. 
Just warning anybody out there. But then, you know, she says, oh, Miles, you know, Bashir, he just looks so depressed. Maybe you should go hang out with him for a couple hours. And O'Brien gets all giddy and excited. And as he stops, he turns to leave because O'Brien's not an idiot. He realizes what she just did. And he's, you know, I'm the luckiest man alive. That was good. Then her calling up Bashir, that was great. Ah, oh, Bashir, O'Brien, he just looks so, you know... Love that. Because the point is that O'Brien, and arguably Bashir, but really just O'Brien, is just too... Well, it would feel too wrong for someone like him to say, Hey, I'd like to go hang out with my friend for a bit. Instead, she gives him permission by basically pushing the, 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 the scenario to begin with. Anyways, so that's the B-plot. And you'll notice I've only talked about that for a couple minutes, and that's mostly me pontificating about you know, child-rearing. That's it. That's all. Why is it in this episode? This episode would probably be, like, among my favorite episodes in DS9. No joke. If not for two things. The inclusion of the B-plot and the murder. The murder was a huge misstep, in my opinion. I'm going to address that now, because I really do feel like it completely doesn't fit with the rest of it. Quick summary. They reintroduce a caste system, and then the guy decides to kill someone because he said no to adhering to his caste, basically. Now, every other aspect of the way they're portraying the caste system makes sense and shows a slow escalation of all of the bads that a caste system is. It also shows how the main guy himself, whose name I actually can't remember, uh, the fake emissary, we'll call him Emissary 2, is like, yeah, no, this has to be what's right. And there's a lot of nuance and unpacking that can be done with him. But all of that is just thrown away when someone kills... No, 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 no. Someone murders someone else because of this caste system. That immediately catapults this to, all right, all right, we got to deal with this right now. Instead of being a more, well, let's just put it what it is, nuanced and believable, slow gradient of societal differentiation rather than someone just frickin' died. Also, as an aside, his neck snapped. Can't they fix that with Star Trek tech? I mean, Bashir's right there, and they've just found out about it. Anywho. So I feel that was a huge misstep in the story, and it's, it's my one real complaint about the A-plot. Other than the fact that it's not long enough. Because that's those are my only two complaints about the A-plot. It should have been stretched out more and the killing. Other than that, really good stuff. So, we cannot talk about this episode proper without talking about religion and faith. And I stress the variance between those two, as I always do. Um, I'm not going to bring down the controversy box. If those two topics make you uncomfortable or you don't want to hear some random bald idiot on the internet talking about it, this would be a good time to pause the video because that's what I'm going to do. I want you to picture for a moment that you're a religious icon. Religious icon, not faith icon. Try to picture what that feels like for a moment. Now, I'm guessing there's going to be some joke answers in the comments, and that's the norm, it's the internet, but for me, that would be terrible. That just sounds awful. Especially if you are not a practic practitioner of the faith that religion embodies. Cisco doesn't really believe in the prophets. They're just the wormhole aliens to him. People he people he's actually interacted with already. This isn't a matter of faith or believing. It's just other people think I am a major part of their emphasis religion. Okay. Get my smiling face on. Hi. Yes, I've been practicing the Bajoran blessing. Abdi babdi blue blue blah blah blah. That would be terrible. Now, it's worse because this is a very unique situation, and credit to DS9's uh, creators for constructing this so specifically, because he's not perpetuating a lie. 
This is not who watches the watchers and Picard walking down on high and proclaiming himself as God. No, instead, he is the emissary. He is the person who went to the wormhole and pulled out the people and talked to the prophets and all this other fun stuff. He does fit the bill. It's just their faith happens to be connected to the reality that he actually is and therefore acknowledges. So, and that's very important because that makes it not false. He may not believe in it, but it's not a lie. There's a difference there, right? There's some ambiguity that's constructed into there. And it's not like Sisko doesn't understand and acknowledge how important this is to the Bajoran people. And I'm not even talking about with regards to his job and how much he wants Bajor to be part of the Federation. No, I'm talking more about the fact that he... He respects other people. You know, like a Federation citizen should do. That he actually legitimately respects and honors and, and the, these people and the way they think and the way they feel. And because there is no, again, falsehood in it, he goes along with it. But you can tell he's not happy about it. Why would he be? So I feel so badly for Cisco. And then this guy comes through. He was going to be played by David Warner, apparently, under other circumstances. That would have been interesting. And he says, oh, well, I'm the emissary. Uh, <laughs> hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. So probably one of the... There's a lot of little subtle performances in this episode I want to draw your attention to. There's this bit where he describes what it was like talking to the prophets. And he describes it the way... We, the audience, have always seen it, and some of the characters have actually seen it too. People you know talking to you in kind of a vague sort of a way, right? You know, they took the form of my, my parents, my, my grandparents, my children, you know, or, or he doesn't have children, sorry, but, you know, my wife. Because that's the, how the prophets always interact. And there's this subtle little bit with both Kira and Sisko noticeably change their stance, because at that point, this isn't just some Bajoran crazy guy. He is accurately and without prompting describing what it's like to interact with the prophets. So, okay, we have to take this seriously now. It's a nice little touch. And then there's this great little bit, and this, I think, adds some wonderful characterization to the guy, because he says this little line, people still read my work? Oh, that's, that's, that's so, that's, that's so embiggening. He doesn't use that word. <laughs> I'm going to call him Lon. Let's call him Lon. I, I think it's actually, I should call him... Uh, a quorum, but I don't actually remember which of those is three, so we're just going to call him Lon and leave it at that. Anyway, so, you know, it, and he comes across as humble. Now, that's important, because it would have been real easy for Star Trek or any other fiction to make this new guy be this pompous ass, right? To just be the kind of guy who, oh, I am the, the emissary, and I am right, and oh, I'm going to use this. And it would have been so easy to make him someone who is profiting off of his newfound wealth of political affluence, uh, influence, excuse me, not affluence, and the, the, kind, <clears throat> the kind of benefits that that would give. But instead, he really thinks he's the emissary. He really is overwhelmed by it, and he's not sure what to do about it. Now, that's the subtlety and nuance I referenced earlier. A lot of his portrayal, props to the guest star, which is Richard Libertini, he does a good job of this, props to the guest star, he, he portrays at several points the uncertainty that if this was a longer episode or a two-parter or whatever, you would have had more time to really buy into the, the significance of that. Because it's very clear from this guy's presentation, he's not sure. You know, I've, I was sent from the past into the future by the prophets. I'm their emissary. But, like, why? 
why? And that, that word is just there on almost every performance he gives in the entire episode. Why? And he himself answers th that own question. But each time he does, there's just a little bit of uncertainty. My favorite back and forth is right after the murder I mentioned. Because Cisco says, what the hell, dude? And the guy's like, well, I, I'm sorry. I, I knew this would be wrong, but the prophets... And he says something very reasonable and understandable. The prophets wouldn't necessarily put us on a smooth road. And then Cisco says, how are you sure? And the guy stumbles for just a second. And then he responds, well, I am the Bemissary. Which is a non-answer. He himself is not sure. He himself is uncertain. And you could tell he's having the same, for lack of a better way to put it, crisis of faith that Cisco was having. Except now he's having it because well, he has to maintain sure. I mean, again, there's demonstrable truth here. He really did go through the wormhole, really was healed by the prophets, and really was dragged forth in the future. Those things did happen. And that leads me to one of the most interesting aspects of this episode for me from a theoretical perspective. Bear with me for a moment. I want you to imagine for a moment that God, or gods, whichever you prefer, demonstrably showed up and just started doing stuff. Just, hi. They don't, they don't really talk to you. Or at least if they do, they talk super vaguely, because of course they do. But they actually do stuff, and then they wander off. Now... <laughs> I don't know about you guys, that would be a hell of an experience. In fact, I imagine most human beings currently alive would just be like, uh, okay, right? I'm not saying that we should automatically assume that these beings that came down are in fact God or gods, but my point is more along the lines of what if they came down and said, do this? No ifs, ands, or buts. How people would react to that would be interesting and could be discussed in its own separate video, but what I'm trying to get across is it's not hard to understand the desire to follow that, that command. Not because humans are sheep and not because people desire to follow, but because a demonstrably, keep using that word on purpose, a demonstrably higher power just came down and said, do this. You disagree with it. You're not sure about it, but I mean, they just said, okay. I mean, there's got to be some reason for it, right? It's got to make some sense, right? This is the true brilliance of this episode. Because unlike many other works, including Star Trek itself, they do not paint the prophets as false gods. Rather, they paint them as, let's use the word, distant gods. Or perhaps absentee, but that's not quite accurate either. So let's just go with distant. They didn't bring this guy forward and say, you are here in order to provide the Cisco with the faith he needs to go forward as the emissary. Because that's what they actually did. But they don't communicate that. And it's worth noting, and this is a valid point, because this helps make the prophet slightly more, uh, less evil. <laughs> slightly more less evil. They don't do this on purpose. They legitimately have difficulty in communicating their intent because of how different they perceive things to how we perceive things. That is also important. Because, I mean, how many fictional settings have we had at this point in history of dick gods, right? I mean, I, I've read Greek. Anyways, <clears throat> so the point being that we have this situation where they are trying to communicate something, failing at it, and everyone's trying to interpret it. And that brings me back to Mr. Khan, or Lon, excuse me. <laughs> Mr. Lon, God, uh, Lon here is someone who is interpreting because he has to, 
because he basically has no idea what else. And again, there's that thing. There has to be a reason for it, right? There has to be a why. Why was I saved? Why was my life given back to me? And he just and you'll notice he just keeps going back to that one prophecy over and over and over. He even brings that up to the prophets, and they're just like, "Huh? What's he talking about?" I love that because again, that's the only leg he has to stand on. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations that could be said of this. It's worth noting because a lot of this is unsaid because. Well, because this episode needed to be longer, as I think I've already made clear several times. But So I would as ever love to hear other people's interpretations. But for me, I see a person who is just a poet. By his own reaction to the fact that people still read my work, he wasn't a big poet. He wasn't some big super name. He was just a poet, and that's it. And all of a sudden, he nearly dies, is brought back from the dead by his literal demonstrable gods, and comes back and is like, oh my god, I'm in the future. I, I'm the emissary. It's true. The prophecies were true. I, I must show the people the way. But what is the way? Because they didn't tell him that. They didn't tell him anything, really. I feel for this guy, if you understand me. Indeed, it's worthy of note, to continue further uh, evidence towards my own interpretation of this, that when he finally goes and interacts with the, First of all, he has no hesitation about going and talking to the prophets. None. Uh, I, I could see many other people, <clears throat> Kaiwen, excuse me, having that kind of more obstinance to that kind of an interaction. But second of all, is he, he goes right in, they, they wait, and as soon as they make things clear that he's not the emissary, they're just like, he just, he accepts it relatively quickly. If anything, I would say that what happens to him is that he becomes deflated because his whole purpose was for this guy. That's it. It's all I was here for. Okay, that sucks. And then Cisco's the one to argue, no, nah, no, nah, send him back. I don't know why they wipe his memories, though. That's so unnecessary. Especially since they do the extensively pseudo-type 2 time travel here. And when I say pseudo, I mean, well, let's just say time traveler's exemption clause seems to apply to way more people than it should, <laughs> which is by itself a headache I don't actually want to unpack. Let's just move on from that. But, um... Yeah, he's just, um, okay. I look at this guy, and I see someone who is causing a huge problem, and knows it, but insists that it's the path forward because he has no other path forward. Let me put it to you in a slightly different way. I want you to imagine that Bob over there, who is a poet, and that's it. Has no children, has no real life of significance, he's just a random guy. You, utterly uninspired, uns, insignificant, not ambitious, not super important, not super rich, not super powerful, just a guy gets picked up out and over and, 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 you know, by the gods and they say, hey, listen, you're the emissary. Fling! He seems so overwhelmed for most of the episode. Any certainty he has is always hesitant. This is another reason I wish David Warner had actually been in this because David Warner is one of my favorite actors of all time, and I guarantee you he could have gotten across a lot of the nuance that I am interpreting from this presentation. So I, I feel for this guy, because he's just in way, way, way over his head. At least Cisco is a commander in Starfleet who's had the kind of training and, and uh, experience of actually being responsible for other people. This guy's just a dude. And so he clings to the only thing he knows is de demonstrably different about the now compared to the when. Because that's just logical, right? There has to be something significant about now and then. 
both points have to matter. So I was pulled out specifically, and of course, this is his, the flaw in his thinking, because he doesn't realize that they are nonlinear as a species. So he is thinking, his, his primary focus is on the time. I was the first, I came from then, and here I am now. All three points of his major argument are all about time. And how can you blame him? How can he know they're nonlinear as a species? So, he, <laughs> I mean, think about how long it took for Cisco to really figure that out. He shows up, and he's, you know, Cardassian occupation, and everything's horrible. Well, clearly, the one big connecting point, the one difference between then and now, is back then we had a caste system. They try to dodge around that word, because caste is an ugly word, and with good reason. Quick segue. When I was do, doing my research and notes for this, I actually spent some time looking into castes as a concept. A lot of information about the India caste system, for example. And um, as I was going through and looking at historical references for castes, I never found the information I really wanted. And I was trying to find a nice, clean definition. Because one of the things I always challenge myself when it comes to everything is, <laughs> funnily enough, why? Because when I hear the words caste system, my thought goes, ugh, bad, awful, horrible, right? And I imagine most other people have a similar reaction. But as ever, I didn't want to just leave it at that. I wanted to discuss why. Because I was challenging myself, well, maybe there's a possibility of a caste system being good. And historically speaking, there are rare and temporary, I want to stress both of those words, circumstances in which a caste system can be beneficial to a society. Usually a society that is in the middle of a horrific upheaval or has just survived something terrible. In other words, everything's getting locked down societally for now to fix things, and then the lock should be lifted. The should be lifted part is usually the problem, historically speaking, but let's move on. But I didn't find what I really wanted, so I decided to write my own definition of a caste system, and I quote myself, locks people into a classification and role based on circumstances beyond their control, their birth. I can think of a few other things that fit that definition too, and that's on purpose. So having established that caste systems are bad, this guy wants them to go back to a caste system. Now, <laughs> I could really get into controversial territory with this episode. I really could. Bring forward, like, imagine for a moment, two centuries ago, someone who was, oh, I don't know, a slave owner was brought forward into the now, and he sees, and he was brought forward by demonstrable gods, and he sees, well, what's different between now and then? Obviously, the, well, I'd say the absence of slaves, but that's why we're getting into controversial territory. But you get the point, right? Slavery is a bad thing? No, that's the way things should be, because the gods say it should be. And this is why I love Kira's inclusion of this episode, because Kira is someone who has no idea what she should do. And I like that. Her faith tells her that she believes, really, actually, truly, literally believes in the prophets and as a, as a natural byproduct in the emissary. It is Odo who points out the immediate flaw in her logic. Logic's the wrong word, but you get my point. Well, hang on. If, if Sisko was the emissary and, and he is the emissary, then what's, there's a contradiction here. Your beliefs are in contradiction with each other. Now, she gives a nice quote in response. But the problem is, Odo is correct. There's a flaw here. Because Kira's beliefs are not wrong. They're just, there's just specific circumstances that's misinforming it. Let me put to you this in another way. 
pretend for a moment. Let's get it. Let's enter Fantasyland because I really want to try and avoid as much controversial topic as I can here. Let's enter Fantasyland and let's say that God is real, okay, in this Fantasyland, and God is like, "Hey, what's up?" So um, I'm gonna found this religion. We're gonna call it uh, Poker Chipism, okay? They smell really good, okay? Oh yeah. So I'm gonna found Poker Chipism. It's all about poker chips. They're great, okay? So he founds this, and a lot of people, again, partially because of the demonstrable nature, and partially because of just their own belief or faith or whatever, believe in poker chipism. You with me so far? Now, in real life, what would usually happen is people would try to take advantage of this for their own ends. And we know this happens in DS9 because Kai Win exists. But that's not what I'm talking about here. No, this is about legitimate faith being misinformed. Let's say someone shows up, let's say God, we'll call him Poker Chip Prime. Let's say Poker Chip Prime, who looks like this, and he's like, and he just grabs someone, and is like, I have saved your life, and then he plops them over here. And you can kind of see why this is unpacking in this manner, but this person, there's no actual direct connection other than the fact that this person's life was saved by Poker Chip Prime. So a lot can be presumed from that, but presumption is exactly that, not necessarily true. So Kira, she sits here thinking, well, this, this is being stated as true. And I stress the way I say that. Not this is true, this is being stated as true. And at every step, she is hesitant. Wonderful props to not a visitor as usual. She is hesitant. She is torn up about this. She is clearly just... Everything about her is telling her that this is wrong, including, if I might interpret, her faith. Even her faith disagrees with what's happening. But then she sits down with her logic and says, well, if this is presumed to be true, then I must do this to adhere to what I really, truly, literally believe in. Right? It is the misinformation that forms the problem here. Because he's not the emissary. And his message is something he just made up. Right? I really feel for a lot of the characters in this one because this is a hard situation to be in. It's actually funny to me because they really do have the easy out because they can just go ask God. They can just say, hey, Prime. Yeah, what? Um, so am I the emissary? No, you idiot. I just saved your life. Oh, okay. Um, could you send me back to my turn? Sure, here you go. And that's the end of the episode. It does wrap up into a little bit of a neat bow, but that's part of the strength in my opinion, of the episode, is that the prophets really do exist. Otherwise, this would just get into a whole lot of vague territory that we couldn't even properly cover because we wouldn't know the truth. <sighs> I actually don't have much else to say about this episode. The episode does a good job with the one exception, with its overall topic and theme. The episode does a great job with its actors. And then there's the B-plot, which shouldn't have been there. I guess that's all I got. I hope you've enjoyed my incredibly controversial thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.